Welcome to Redesigning High School, the home edition. I am Terry DeVoe, English teacher and director of special projects here at Hawken outside of Cleveland. And I'm Julia Griffin, director of the Mastery School of Hawken. So Julia, we're doing this again. We're doing our second uh, uh, episode about, uh, well, in the middle of this pandemic. Um, so we thought it'd be a smart idea to record these episodes, uh, to talk about these is issues going on with remote learning, release it more often because, uh, you know, there's a pressing issue out there. We figure teachers and educators, people might want to want to hear what we're doing. Um, and so today yeah. we're pretty excited. We got, uh, we got a, we got an all-star. Uh, Eric, do you consider yourself an all-star? I mean, from your lips, Terry, from okay. your lips. <laughs> All right. Well, we have uh, Eric Hudson is the Director of Learning and Design at the Global Online Academy. Um, and in addition to providing high-quality student programming in uh, throughout the school year and the summer courses, Eric uh, has been at the forefront of uh, really incredible work at uh, Global Online Academy that's focused on instructional design, competency, master-based learning, assessment, um, and he's been really very, very helpful with the Mastery Transcripts Consortium. So, Eric, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, Eric, you and I saw each other in person not that long ago, actually, just a couple months ago um, at NEIS, uh, the big national conference of independent schools. Um, and I remember seeing on Twitter afterward that you had commented that you were even more popular than usual at that conference <laughs> um, as people were just slowly starting to wonder what might what things might be like if if school had to go remote for a bit um, and it's been quite a quite a couple of months since then um, I've, I honestly I've lost track of how many thousands of educators you all have trained um, I just wonder if you could start by telling us a little about what the last couple months have been like for you and the and the team at GOA sure feels like that conference was like two years ago <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, so, so around um, the Lunar New Year, at the end of January, GOA has about a dozen members in East Asia, you know, China, Vietnam, Singapore. And we were hearing from them that students and teachers were going away for holiday and they weren't going to come back because of the virus. And so that's when things became very apparent to us at GOA that things were getting serious. and. Over the course of February is when we were talking a lot with schools in Asia about how they were handling it, um, what was closure looking like. Many of these students and teachers who had gone home for holiday uh, didn't bring their laptops with them. And so there were all these sort of questions around not just pedagogy and curriculum and instruction, but literally like logistics and strategy and all those practical concerns. So by the time you got to NEIS at the end of March, we had done a couple of blog posts, or sorry, the end of February. We had done a couple of blog posts um, and we had talked to a lot of schools, but it was coming to the US, like it had gone through Europe and the sort of wave was coming to the US. And so right around then is when we introduced this sort of free online course for educators called Designing for Online Learning, where basically we went into all the classes and stuff GOA has been doing for like a decade in the online space and tried to identify the strategies and lessons, whatever, that felt most accessible to educators who found themselves having to move online, like literally in a matter of days. Um, and so since that first run of the course in March, we take about 15,000 educators have enrolled in our various courses 
and offerings. Um, and a lot educators from like every continent, every country, all those things. And I think that's just because this has claimed the attention of the world, obviously, and specifically for educators, there is this just huge, enormous demand for support in how to do your job and do your job well when everything that was sort of stable and known to you about your job before has changed. And that's really sort of the kind of environment we've been finding ourselves in for the last couple of months is just a lot of sort of anxiety and uncertainty and, and wondering about what it means to be a teacher when you don't have a classroom anymore. Yeah. So it's going to feel a little bit like therapy for me because I'm exactly that guy, right? I had two classes that had to turn on a dime um, into remote learning. So uh, while the audience for this conversation is broader, I'm going to listen very carefully because you're you're talking to me. Like I'm, it's been it's been a real challenge to turn you know to classes that I knew pretty well and had a pretty good sense of what you know post spring break was going to do, and then to have to you know reimagine it. Uh, on a dime. So uh, when you help people, teachers like me, make this transition, what are the, some, some of the biggest differences you encourage us to keep in mind as we move to, you know, online teaching? Yeah, we usually start with what has not changed, um, what remains the same. And so first and foremost, um, learning doesn't happen without relationships. And so your first priority when you're designing online, in person, both, whatever it is, is what are the ways I'm going to stay connected to my students? What are the ways my students are going to feel known and supported? And how do I make time for those things? And I think one of the things that we've seen teachers struggle with in the transition has been that might mean letting go of some content, letting go of some curriculum, letting go of some of the things you might normally have covered in an in-person, non-crisis environment. Um, you know, when you move online really fast, forget whether or not there's a crisis, right, which adds this incredibly more complicated element to it, you really have to think about what are the tools available to me that would allow me to connect with students and would allow students to communicate with me. That's where you start. And then after that, you really have to get clear, and this is where sort of the mastery competency stuff comes in. You have to be super clear about what your priorities are in terms of learning outcomes. Because again, you're gonna to have to let some stuff go, and that's okay. And you're going to not cover as much as you could cover, and that's okay. But that requires a lot of prioritization. What do you think is the most important things your students should know and be able to do at where, wherever they're learning? And just focus on designing experiences for those. That's you know understanding by design, Wiggins and McTie. It goes back to sort of real core pedagogy stuff. And after you've figured out the relationships, after you figure out the learning outcomes, then we can have a conversation about online pedagogy and, and then lastly, sort of the technology tools element of it. We try to really start in that. That's kind of our order of operations when we're designing stuff. Which is interesting that that's actually the reverse of what most faculty feel. They feel worried first about the technology and then about the pedagogy. Like, oh, yeah, then what do we, what do we want them to know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's been striking to, I think GOA has been doing this for almost 10 years, and we actually use fewer technology tools than we used at the beginning. Um, and that's because what we've realized is that 
you have to be just a really good curator with technology and technology can distract from core learning goals. Um, you know, we sh I assume people listening to this podcast are familiar with cognitive load and the idea of cognitive load is really at the core of effective online learning design. And all the bells and whistles of technology can actually overburden cognitive load and prevent the student from focusing on what really matters, which is the kind of the learning that's in front of them. I think that's that's such a good point. And um, I'm reminded of a, a term that a colleague and uh, friend whom you know too, Eric, um, uh, Derek Kanarek at, at Catlin Gable, um, that they implemented with the teachers at Catlin uh, in this moment of introducing new uh, introducing new tools, and it may be one that he got from you, actually. I know that you've used a ton of GOA resources, but about implementing a speed limit at this moment of how many new things to introduce at a time, um, because uh, that cognitive load piece is, is so real in online learning to begin with, um, and then especially with the, the other levels you were speaking about of, of crisis, frankly. So what you were just talking about in terms of relationships, obviously that's, uh, that's a priority. It's challenging though with technology and the isolation. I've noticed it, you know, now that we're three weeks into this, that it's somewhat even, yeah, even more challenging now than maybe it was at the very beginning. Um, do you have some go-to strategies that you recommend for faculty to establish relationships and uh, a sense of community in, in their classes? Yeah. Um, I think it's, when you're in a school, that relationships connective stuff, a brick and mortar school, can feel very organic and spontaneous. You pass someone in the hallway, you hold someone after class, someone comes to your office. So a lot of that stuff kind of goes away when you're working online. So you have to be really intentional and proactive about building routines and systems for relationship building, which sounds weird, but actually does kind of work. And so one of the simple things we say to educators is every action you take online should be relational. So we are used to using technology for very transactional things, right? Like you send an email to schedule a meeting or ask someone to do something, or you get a text message because you want to know when someone is coming home. When you're working online and that's your only form of communication, really think about how you can take those communications and infuse them with something relational, a personal note, a link to something fun or interesting, a photo. Can you make a video instead of, instead of sending an email? Can you give feedback via audio or video so that students can hear your voice and see your face? When you begin a video call with students, can you start with an icebreaker or just a check-in? How are you doing? What's happening? That Those simple moves require some intentionality, but not a lot of extra time. And they go a long way to reminding students that, yes, we're on a video call. Yes, I'm emailing you. Yes, this is not ideal. Nobody wants to be here right now. But I care about you, and I'm taking the time to ask you questions or share something with you that feels more personal and relational. Yeah, I've noticed. I've done a lot of video calls and a lot of that. And, uh, you know, we'll eventually get to the thing we need to talk about. But you could just sense the psychological and emotional dynamics at play, you know, the, the tedium, the boredom, the sadness, whatever it is. Um, if I were only doing it over email, I would never get that texture, right? Mm -hmm. So I absolutely understand what you're saying. Um, 
And I, and I would just add that I think um, I love the way you and others from Global Online Academy model this so beautifully in your educator courses. I'm thinking about all those wonderful, um, you know, morning welcome sort of update videos that you would do with inclu including lovely personal touches and your dog um, or other um, contextual uh, pieces, because I also think everything feels so, um, you know, de decontextualized and so seeing where you know someone out for a walk and where they live um uh can help to to humanize it and give us that connection that we're that we're looking for i think that's a really good point i mean this is something that we've really fought a lot over the years at goa that specific issue of video so we often think of online learning as like i'm making an instructional video like i'm going to show you how to do something i'm going to do a math problem or do a grammar lesson on video and what we were realizing is that teachers were spending hours producing these instructional videos, but not showing anything of themselves. And when it's actually much more effective and a far better investment of your time to, like you said, take your phone, if you have a smartphone, go out to a favorite place, your backyard, take your dog for a walk, and spend two minutes telling your students what you're up to, or deliver the message you need to deliver for your course in that context, because that sort of informal thing actually shows them that you're human um, and actually shows you a little bit more, shows your students that you want them to do the same for you, that it's okay to make an imperfect video, that's okay to like, show me your dog, show me your favorite thing, show me your backyard, whatever it is. Um, and that sort of effort to be more informal and a little bit more authentic can really go a long way. I, I think that's that's so true. And I, I also think uh, something that I've noticed in just the last few weeks is I have a much harder time, and now maybe now this is my turn for therapy, Terry, but <laughs> I have a much harder time remembering who I've told things to um, and who has told me things when I'm interacting with flat screens or interacting on the phone. And I think it is because of that lack of contextual detail. But when there are uh, different sensory elements present or a different background or a different context, you know, we know from cognitive science that those things, having those things attached to the memory helps us remember it. And, uh, and I, I do feel that to be true. And I think that, you know, there always are so many things I think we can learn from, um, from early childhood educators and from folks who work with young kids. I'm probably biased. My mom's a kindergarten teacher. Um, but our, our daughter is in first grade and the way that her teachers are recording these morning meeting videos um is in many ways an example of exactly what you're talking about um and they they bring in those elements of their house because that's where they are and it, it makes things much more engaging absolutely yeah um so i want to pivot for a minute to um the second of the things that you talked about when you were talking about that progression from relationships to learning outcomes to eventually then you know so what am i going to teach them um and you know i have been thinking a lot in the last several weeks about how much um overlap there is between the prioritization, like you talked about before, that remote learning requires and the, that kind of level of prioritization that mastery-based learning or competency-based learning requires. And then I thought, oh wait, this is the intersection that Eric has been living at this whole time and we've all just come to your neighborhood. But here we are. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. So so I'm just curious, you know, do you, are you, are you already seeing things or do you think that, the, that there will be uh, that the fact that all these educators are having experiences of remote teaching and learning will have an impact on that transition to mastery learning. Um, I hope so. I mean, I think it's it's very difficult to tell because things are moving so fast. And again, this element of crisis 
um, has really, I think, made it difficult to process and envision things in ways that are that we normally would. What I can say is that one of the reasons that GOA started moving to competency-based learning in 2016 was actually because we are online. Um, you know, what students were telling us in all of our surveys is that through learning, through taking whatever, neuropsychology, fiction writing, uh, you know, introduction to investments, whatever GOA course they were taking, what was surfacing out of their feedback was they liked the course content, that was great, but actually what they were really gaining, what was really meaningful to them was the skills they were gaining from having to learn online. And through that feedback is how we generated six core competencies, um, which we can talk about if you want, but the idea that there are actual skills associated with a high quality online learning experience for students. And if you articulate those skills clearly and give them to teachers and then say to teachers, we wanna support you in designing learning experiences around or for these competencies, that it brings about this real shift in how the course happens. And teachers are much more comfortable sort of letting go of things that might feel extraneous to the competencies. And I think that's the real power of competency-based learning at that level is you just have a real clear sense of purpose. And then the online stuff, if you wanna get really into it, like it just supports more personalized learning, moving at your own pace, doing projects in your local community, connecting with people beyond your school, all the things we value about competency or mastery-based learning around this idea of empowering students putting students at the center, engaging students with the world beyond school. Online environments can really support that um, and can really move things forward faster around competency-based learning. I think a big question for me whenever we come out of this is, what will teachers think of this experience? And how are we helping them reflect in a meaningful way about what worked, what didn't work, and what they want to work on as a result of it. Um, I think all those things are sort of unanswered questions right now. I completely agree. <clears throat> and I think uh, figuring out when the right times are for those moments of reflections matters, it depends so much on, on uh, all kinds of things that we don't know the answer to yet, right? So, you know, Ohio just, just a, last, a few days ago became one of the states that announced that school is closed for the rest of the year. And uh, and so, like many other schools, we're now starting to have conversation uh, about when about what the contingencies might look like for the fall. Um, and uh, and so I'm I'm so I'm so glad that you know that you brought up what you did about student agency um, and ownership because if this is more than a short term, you know, a crisis to be survived, but this actually is, it, this remote teaching and learning is something we need to do for a longer haul. Um, and I think the frame changes and that, that opportunity for reflection and what this phase two look like, um, that, there, that there, there are real opportunities there. Um, and I was, I was thinking too, and really looking forward to our conversation uh, today in part because um, we, we had a family, one of our founding class families actually reach out yesterday um, concerned about how you could possibly do a school that prioritizes student agency in an online learning environment, um, which speaks, I think, so much to the variability of quality of online learning experiences that, that people have. Um, but I thought, 
you know, I was pretty sure you would you would disagree with the idea that it wasn't possible to have student agency in an online learning environment. And I, I would, you know, you, you spoke to it really nicely just now. I wonder if there's more that that you could say about that. Yeah, I, I, I think it depends. I mean, it's just it's just not a zero sum game. Like it's not like, oh, all online is bad, all in person is good. Like I think race educators know that that's not true. And, you know, I'm sure in designing the Mastery School of Hawking that you all have experienced the idea of like, wait, this doesn't look like school, so it can't be good. And it's the same thing with online learning. Like there are different ways to do it. And what we know at GOA, our model is small classes, um, high, very high relationship, very interest-based, very project-based, inquiry-based, all that stuff. And after doing that for years and years, the things that students have struggled with the most in all of our data has been not the content, not the rigor of the learning that's happening, but that sort of being your own boss element of learning online. And students really had to work hard at showing up, leading their own learning, you know, managing deadlines, keeping themselves organized, making important choices as part of the agency. They were all struggling with agency. And so what we were learning was that we could explicitly build opportunities for practicing agency into online courses. And just like as you design for mastery-based learning, you explicitly design opportunities for agency in it. Students will struggle with it. It won't feel maybe what they're accustomed to, but it's a critical skill for the world. And you can do it online if you're designing the online experience in a way that's asking students to be your partner in the learning experience or be your co-collaborator, as opposed to just kind of like passively receive information that's delivered online. Well, you know, everything, your experience is so vast and so, uh, and, and so powerful in a non-crisis moment. Uh, at this moment, it's uh, exceptional. And so uh, we hope that you know, the people listening got a little a bit of a, a taste of um, all your expertise and what Global Online Academy um, can do. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll link to you in our show notes and all that sort of stuff. But um, we're just so grateful that you took some time to talk with us today um, about this. Uh, and uh, I've got a feeling if we're doing this in August or September, we'll probably talk to Eric again. Don't you think, Julia? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, just to be a fangirl for a moment, I think that the work that you all, that you do specifically um, and the work of Global Online Academy is um, something that I come back to as a touchstone of reassurance in this moment to say, no, no, it can be done. Like really high quality sort of op learning opportunities that center student agency, that tap into intrinsic motivation that are competency and mastery based like we don't we're not going first on that <laughs> um and there are great models to draw on so well, thank thanks you. likewise i'm so excited for you all so excited to see the launch of the school i am fanning out also over here so well, well, very good all right well so now Eric, you get to you get to hear me do the close this is very exciting all right P get ready um, so anyway, it's very behind the scenes. All right, so thanks, Eric, for uh, taking the time to speak with us. We want to thank Nick Fletcher, who's our editor uh, and uh, who's doing uh, Yeoman's work trying to get this podcast out to, uh, on a weekly basis. Um, if you like our podcast, including you, Eric, you can review it on iTunes or wherever you listen. Uh, reviews help us with the uh, algorithm. Uh, it can help uh, put the podcast in front of more people. Uh, you can uh, follow us on social media, 
We're everywhere at all times. Uh, and don't forget to go to redesigningschool.org where you can ask us questions, leave comments, uh, request topics, etc. Um, and you can subscribe to our newsletter, which uh, we're going to put out again very soon. So anyway, thank you, Eric, for joining. Thank you, Julia. And until next time, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep remote learning and teaching.